Don't turn a blind eye You can hear the people cry Wake up and be strong And fight for what is wrong What's up, everybody? This is Dahlia from White People for Black Lives. Really excited to let you all know we are in season two of Bold Conversations About Race. And I'm also excited to announce a new co-host whose voice you might recognize from season one, Yvette L.A. of Justice L.A. Hi, Bold listeners. I'm thrilled to be joining Dahlia and the Bold team on this podcast and really excited to be talking about some major issues that are on the forefront of our organizing. For our first three episodes, we recorded live at UCLA and talked with some experts on the war on drugs, surveillance, and immigration. So stay tuned for those first three episodes where we delve deeper into these issues and talk about how you bold listeners can get activated in organizing on the ground. But before we get to that, who are we, Yvette? Well, Dahlia, I am from Los Angeles. Uh, I'm an organizer like you. And I have various identities. I'm a queer. I'm a femme. I'm Chicanx. Um, I'm an immigrant. I'm a formally undocumented person. Um, I am a club kid, still kicking uh, into it my never 30s. Goes away. It never, never goes, goes away. Never goes away. I'm a DJ. Um, What's your DJ name? My DJ name is DJ Isla. Ooh. Yeah. I do global based music. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I'm not organizing or working on policy, I'm hitting the clubs uh, on the dance floor behind the decks. Uh, but I want to learn a little bit more about you. Mm, a little bit more about me. Yeah. Why don't you tell our bold listeners about your origin story? Um, so I grew up in a small city outside of Boston, which means you'll hear on occasion that I don't pronounce my R's. I really, really try to, <laughs> but uh, I still have a Boston accent. And I grew up in a city called Everett, Massachusetts. It was pretty much a working class city, a few miles north of Boston. And um, I grew up working class. My mom was a waitress. My dad um, had various jobs, but he wasn't super present in our lives for most of my childhood. Um, And I went to a public high school out there and then landed at Northeastern University, which is in Boston. That's when I got linked into doing sort of like social work kind of work um, and uh, got a a bachelor's degree in human services. And then the couple months after I graduated college, I flew out to Los Angeles on a one-way ticket um, with my girlfriend at the time. And I never looked back, and I've been living in Los Angeles since 2003. Um, A little bit more even about my identities. I am queer. I am transmasculine. My pronouns are they, them. And I uh, got linked into organizing a little bit later in life. Um, But I'll stop there. I'll stop there. We'll get into that a little bit later. can you, for my amusement, <laughs> say, I want to park my car near the park? <laughs> oh, no. What it really is, is park the car in Harvard Yard. Okay, yeah. And I don't know the Y'all difference. got it, audience. There you go. <laughs> Have a good laugh at my expense. <laughs> I lived in Boston for some time. Uh-huh. So I, I think it's cute. It's an endearing accent. You oh. know, the thing is, though, when... I, I didn't actually, okay, I will say I didn't even know I had a Boston accent. Even when I, like, not until I got to college in Boston did I know that I even had an accent because everybody there wasn't from the area and was like, hold on, what did you just say? Say park the car on Harvard Yard for me. Ha, ha, ha. So it became like this joke, and it's been a joke for so long now that I'm, like, so over it. But I'm not. I, clearly the people around me are not over it. Uh, but, yeah, so... So, yeah, you said you spent some time in Boston. What was that like for you? How were the winters? Uh, the winters. <laughs> um, they were cold. I had grown up most of my life in L.A. and hadn't really been around snow. And my first year in Boston was the worst winter in 50 years. Um, so I didn't go out much <laughs> when it was snowing and cold. Um 
But other than that, I, I had a really good time in Boston. Uh, at the time, it's like very early 2000s. Um, there was a good music scene there. Uh-huh. I was really into ska and punk. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I had a good time there. Yeah. I, I can't say enough good things about Boston. It's a nice, like, small city. Uh-huh. So I still got the city feel. Um, but there were a lot of students there. So it was it was fun. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I liked it for what it was when I was there. And I got into some really great music and, you know, got into like a little bit of the ska and punk scene there, too. And then go to the Middle East. I did go to the Middle <laughs> East and the Rat, Rat Skeller. Yeah. Uh-huh. I went to used to go to those places frequently. And then I got into like the rave scene. And like once I got into electronic music, like nothing else mattered. And it was just I needed my head inside of a very loud speaker every weekend listening to that house music or drum and bass. And I still kind of, it hasn't gone away. Like, I don't think I'll ever get that on my system. So on that note, tell me a little bit about what kind of kid you were in high school. Oh, I was a weird kid. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think I I was I was a nerdy kid. Like I did speech and debate and did all of, you know, the honors classes, AP. I was kind of brainy in that way. But I was also like, you know, a theater kid. So I was very eccentric. Um, <laughs> Love me some show tunes. Jazz uh, hands, everybody. Jazz hands <laughs> right now. Yeah, I, I loved fashion. Um and I think that came from being a theater kid wearing costumes and also from like growing up relatively poor and thrifting all of my clothes, making clothes with my grandma. Um, I I loved like vintage fashion. I was obsessed with vintage fashion um, and my mom really indulged me. She, um, you know, she buy me furs at the vintage store (laughs) (laughs) I would I I was very ridiculous especially as a little little kid like I went through a period where I was obsessed with like Victorian lit I was like eight or nine and I would wear you know these like billowy silk blouses and my hair up in like a giant bun with pearls like at eight and nine so yeah and then I got really into like mid-century fashion like 50s um especially in high school. Um, yeah, really, you know, from from early 1900s, like everything <laughs> from like calico print when I was going through like my frontier girl, like, you know, those American girl dolls. Did you uh-huh. ever? Uh-huh. Yeah. And so I was really into those books, at, you know, around 10. So then I had like the calico print obsession. I mean, f- just fashion and all the ages was my thing. So I was very weird and eccentric and I had a cousin that was a flight attendant and she traveled all around the world. And so she would also bring me clothes from like India or Southeast Asia. And so I was always looking kind of different than everybody else. Mm. Um, Yeah. And I I was okay with that. I mean, my high school environment was kind of oppressive. (laughs) I went to this high school, Sunny Hills High School in Fullerton, uh, California, which for those that aren't familiar with California geography, it's in Orange County, uh, the OC. So it was a very affluent place to go to school um, and really oppressive for you know, an undocumented immigrant girl like me. Um, Most of my classmates had a lot, a lot of money. Um, And there there was a lot of overt racism um, from my classmates, but also from my teachers. So I, I remember my English teacher, he gave us an assessment on the first day of high school, um, like an, like a just like a little test to see where we were at. And the next day he walks in and he turns to me and he's and he says, wow, Yvette, you got the highest score and you don't even look very smart. And this was like the wow. kind of thing that would always happen to me. Yeah. Um, I was constantly like hypersexualized. Um, it, it was it was really awful. And so having my own like eccentric little world to myself what that was about books and music and mm. fashion and theater um, was was really a survival tactic for me. Yeah, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. What kind of kid were you in high school? 
Um, I, in high school, I felt like I finally sort of came a little bit more into my identity. Luckily, when, at that point, it was like 90s fashion. And I say luckily because <laughs> 90s fashion kind of gave me an out and a reason to be able to dress in more masculine ways without folks really questioning it because I was able to kind of like hide myself under like, you know, skater culture, skater fashion, then eventually like rave culture and rave fashion, which was very sort of gender bendy and very like gender neutral. And so um, I in 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 high school, I just was like friends with anybody. I, you know, partied a lot, way too much. I hope my mom is never going to listen to this episode, but I did get, you know, in like senior year when you get those awards, like most likely to succeed and things, I got the party animal award. Like that, <laughs> that was the award I got. So, um, you know, so I just like, I like to have a good time. I tried not to like make enemies. Um, and I was just really into like kicking it with my friends and doing things that I shouldn't have been probably doing at that age but I was having a good time doing it um and you know working I worked at the local Dunkin Donuts <laughs> I think everybody in that area had a stint at working at Dunkin Donuts um and yeah I think that like I always felt a little bit like an outcast and I didn't really know why um I felt that way but when I look back, um, I realize a lot had to do with sort of like some unconscious struggles around my gender identity and just like feeling misplaced constantly, like misplaced in my body, like misplaced kind of everywhere and seeing how, you know, folks, I didn't really have any models at that point around like queerness generally. We had a couple young like students that were sort of sort of out in high school but even then it was it wasn't really like anything that was known or talked about and so I just like had a lot of like confusion um along the way and just like it took me a long time to sort of sort through and kind of get to a place of like understanding about my own gender identity um which took many many years um and many identities along the way of me trying to get to the place of like accepting myself of who i am and um and my own sort of road in that way but um it was certainly like when i also think about my my high school experience like some things that i didn't know at the time was um the incredible amount of racism that existed when i was there and i look back and think about um the intra school segregation so like the segregation that existed so like even though if you looked on its face like it, it appeared to have diversity in my school um but all the white kids hung out basically with the white kids and students of color only hung out with other students of color. And there was not a lot of like folks coming together in different ways. Like for me, I was kind of friends with anybody and it wasn't really much of an issue. I, at least I didn't think until I realized actually who my best friends were. And it was a very homogenous group. And I re recall seeing a lot of like fights on the schoolyard and things like that and, and racial slurs being hurled at people and not really understanding or really um, having the vocabulary to describe what was happening. It was just sort of it just was what it was. And um, and in in hindsight, I is only now when I can really like articulate what that experience was like and um, and how. Um, uninformed I was, how ignorant I was to a lot of the ways that the world worked because I didn't have anybody really to show me anything different or to really educate me about like different issues related to like uh, racism and racial justice and, you know, um, racial oppression and white privilege and all of these things. We just like, that was just never something that happened um it wasn't something that me and my family talked about like we never talked about race because that you know even in the context of like the family setting was was not allowed like it was a it was a taboo topic it was taboo in my high school um it was kind of taboo even in, in a liberal university like northeastern even when i got there i didn't really um for all of the analysis around like social structures um it it really lacked in my understanding of um of race and so um so yeah so I think I managed to make it through like you know a young person trying to do the best I could being friends with everybody and really more of like a colorblind kind of um attitude and way of moving about things um 
and just having a good time and thinking that like partying would solve everything and I mean, who knows, maybe it will one day, but it certainly didn't at that point. <laughs> and, and last thing I will say about um, my high school experience and, and sort of the relationship to partying was like, you know, in the 90s was when the opioid um, crisis began for the most part. In, in Massachusetts, there was the introduction of, um, of Oxycontin and other, and other opioids. And over time, um, a lot of people that I knew began to struggle um, with, with, with opioids to varying degrees. And, and it really hit, you know, in the 90s, early 2000s and so forth to the point that like, since I've been living in Los Angeles, it feels like probably once a year, somebody I knew from my high school um, passed away from a drug overdose or some sort of related issue uh, to substance use. And so um, that is also an issue. So I know we'll be talking about the war on drugs this this season. That's like an issue that is like kind of near and dear to my heart and really how we think about substance use and public health and what gets criminalized versus what gets, you know, empathized with. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I'm glad you, you brought up the, the war on drugs piece because I think there are very few people that haven't been touched by the war on drugs in one way or another. Um, unlike you in high school, I didn't party very much. Um, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I'd go to shows, um, but I, I, I was so scared to do any drugs. Um, my dad um, has struggled with substance use my entire life. And I thought that that there could be a genetic component. Like I may, you know, start drinking and then not be able to stop. And then I also, as an undocumented person, I was scared to do anything that would keep me from going to college. Like I was like single track minded that I was going to go to college. I was going to graduate high school. I was not going to get pregnant. Like I was not going to be, you know, another statistic. Um, and I saw the students around me you know, taking Vicodin and doing a lot of cocaine. Like, you know, I went to a wealthy yeah. high school and that was the drug, like more than weed. It was just, it was a lot of cocaine. Um, and I, I saw how it was affecting them um, you know, even even then. So I I hear you about the rise of, of opioids at that time. Um, and I mean, Luckily, knock on wood, you know, I don't have substance use issues like I can have a cocktail and and be OK. Um, but it was something that I, I always feared in high school. Yeah. Um, and so, I, you know, I wasn't with the cool kids. I didn't party <laughs> <laughs> like you. But um, but it it's something that um, that has like stayed with me. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, thinking about like, okay, then there was sort of like life after high school and, and getting into organizing. So like, you know, how did you get into organizing? How did this become your life's work? And why do you even stay in the game? And, you know, given the context of which we're fighting against. So organizing isn't something that I came to as like an awakening. It, it It's kind of always been in my bones. Um, and I, I think I attribute it to my mom and how much she advocated for us. Mm. Like without speaking any English, you know, English is not her primary language. We, I came to the U.S. when I was four, and um, my mom didn't didn't speak any English. Um, my dad has been working construction since since we came to the U.S. and she somehow found you know the best school in the area and made sure that we got into it she would make sure that you know we were having access to ballet classes and all of those things with having very little income like she'd advocate for scholarships so we could do swim you know swim league and um she she was just like such a fierce advocate for us and when there would be moments where we'd have to confront racism like one moment in particular when i'm thinking about uh, a speech and debate competition and i think the the issue we were arguing was around gun control or something 
And one of the judges wrote down on one of the score sheets that I was playing the race card. Um, Yeah. And I wasn't even discussing race. We were just discussing gun control. Um, And my mom, I showed it to my mom and she immediately went to my coach, went to the head of the uh, speech (laughs) and debate league and forced them to write me an apology letter. Um, And that judge couldn't participate as a judge anymore. And so (laughs) I I would see the way my mom would just move through the world, just wanting to write injustice <laughs> everywhere um shout out to mom yeah shout out to my mom she she's just been such a fierce advocate for for all of my siblings and i and she just she kind of like instilled that in all of us and i guess my first like m- the first instance I could think about in terms of like organizing was actually when I was working in a warehouse. Um, I worked for this import exporting company. I was undocumented at the time. So I really like I I couldn't get a a well-paying job. And so I was getting paid shit at this warehouse, like while I was in college. And um, the ladies in the warehouse uh, would be exploited they didn't speak English like at least I spoke English like I, I knew how to read a lot of folks that worked there didn't couldn't read um, and I'd see how they would be exploited uh, whether it's like injuries in the warehouse that the company was refusing to pay for uh, whether it would be them not receiving overtime so just starting to organize like the workers in the mm. warehouse um, and uh learning how to maneuver through that system so that they could get steady employment. So I worked for this company, which uh, will remain (laughs) nameless, (laughs) but um, I would be in charge of like quality control. And so if there's anything wrong with the garments, I had to report it. And if it was a significant problem, then they'd have to do an audit of everything that was imported from that batch. So I just kind of like rip something (laughs) or like take remove a button or whatever. And I'd report oh there's something wrong with this and so they'd have to do an audit so this way like during the during like the slow season the folks inside would continue to have work Mm -hmm. and I wouldn't have to lay anybody off so like that I think was like the first time I was like just like fucking up the system and like supporting folks through a lot of like the capitalist exploitative situations that they were coming across. Um, And then I started organizing when I moved to the Bay Area, I left Boston. I went to to school at UC Berkeley, so I transferred. And um, I started uh, getting involved in queer organizing, um, in labor organizing. I was part of the Latino pre-law society at Berkeley and we would hold these monthly legal clinics where we would support folks with um, their labor disputes and so having that background like working in the warehouse seeing all of the all the ways that people were exploited um, I was able to use that knowledge to like identify it's like oh you're being fucked over this way Mm. Um, so running those those legal clinics uh, with some of the students at the law school um, and then organizing with and Castro for all um, uh, specifically organizing queer black and Latinx people in the Bay Area and then started organizing around prison abolition work. So I interned for this organization called uh, Justice Now in the Bay Area. Uh, they do uh, prison abolition work inside of the women's prisons in Chowchilla, California. So I learned about uh, participatory documentation of human rights violations. So essentially what that is, is instead of going in as a person that's not incarcerated, going in and, and documenting the human rights violations that people are telling you about you teach others inside how to document their own human rights violations right so you're breaking this power dynamic of like the savior right where you have to you know go in and save folks from this exploitative situation but actually equipping them to be the agents of their own liberation and that for me was was a really important shift in the way that I thought about things. Because um, although I, as an undocumented person, as a uh, an immigrant, 
I experienced a lot of the same exploitative systems, but I think that there was still this this lens of oh, but like because I speak English, because I have these privileges, like I'm going to save my community. And that experience kind of shifted my lens to like, no, like we can all save ourselves and and save our community together. Right. Like, I don't have to be that person. So um, that was kind of the the genesis of like my organizing work. And that was, God, I don't know how many years ago. <laughs> all time. Um, yeah, that's, you know, over 10 years ago. I realize I asked you about organizing, but I also know that maybe some of our listeners might not know exactly some of the the lingo, right, around like what the difference is between an organizer and an activist or what an organizer is in the first place. And so what what do you think your definition of an organizer is versus an activist? Yeah, I mean, I think an activist is someone that is vocal about a particular issue area that they're passionate about. Um, and an or like that's a, like on an individual level, right? Like an activist is really about them as an individual, as part of a larger movement, where an organizer is really uh, working through strategy and tactics, uh, understanding the landscape of the issue, thinking strategically, not just in moments of crisis, but like for the long game, right? So someone that works in the abolitionist movement, as we both do as organizers, we're both uh, strategizing around immediate needs, but also like building up to our long-term vision of abolition. Mm -hmm. Um, And we are holding the various um, components of what that looks like, right? Whether it's like the ground game, the base building piece, whether it's the messaging, the media and communications piece, whether it's uh, looking at an ins- inside versus outside strategy. So like what kind of policy can we move? What should that policy be? When should we Uh, push it forward Um, and then outside like when should we do direct action and direct action is usually when the activists come in right Mm -hmm. when they show up they're vocal with the signs they get their friends to come out um, they you know tweet about the issue they Instagram about it Um, but the organizers are kind of in the background like making it all happen Um, making it look easy sometimes um, when we all know it it's it's actually really hard really grueling work Right. So it's it's almost like like the organizers are creating the container for the activists to show up to mm-hmm. and really thinking about like what that what that end game is and how do we bring as many people as possible into mm-hmm. that that particular strategy or that particular organization. Because if we didn't have people doing that strategy or that thinking, then we wouldn't know as individual activists where to go, what the issues are and how to show up. So it's basically like you know, like folks giving organizers are the folks giving us the platform or the or the information as to where and how we should be showing up as activists. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So why don't you tell me and bold listeners about your journey to organizing? Oh, sure. It, it was a fun journey. I wish I could say it was a journey that didn't hurt people along the way, but that's not the case. Um you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, like I grew up in a working class family with working class in a working class uh, community. And I had sort of a lot of questions and thoughts around like various struggles that I would see, particularly around like economics. Um, my mom, when I was growing up, was a waitress making two dollars an hour in the 80s. And so there was, you know, a lot that I had to that that I saw that was different from other ways that people got to live their lives and really seeing like wealth disparity and 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 wonder about why that was and then of course getting into college and learning about uh different forms of economics and learning about sort of the economy of of capitalism and how that really functions to uh benefit the few at the expense of the many and so I had uh, leanings that became different and really thinking about ways that we could live um, in a more equitable society so that everybody had their needs met versus just a small group of people. Uh, but within embedded in all of that, um, I really lacked that that 
racial awareness or racial analysis or understanding around whiteness and how that may have influenced how I um, operate in the world and how the world would see me. And until in 2008, uh, for folks who were not living in Los Angeles or California, um, there was a proposition called Proposition 8 that was on the ballot that uh, essentially took uh, same-sex marriage rights away from um, from gay f- and lesbian couples, essentially from uh, same-sex couples. And so that was... Uh, we we had a piece of legislation that allowed for marriage equality for a few months, and then um, there was this really nasty campaign um, of these sort of family rights organizations that put the scare tactic um, in everybody as to why, like, if we afforded marriage benefits to same-sex couples, then that would essentially you know, lead to the end of humanity. It was like, it was really, really tough stuff to witness and to feel. And so I began organizing at that point in 2008 with a small group of my friends and going to all of the rallies and the marches and things of that nature that were happening here locally in Los Angeles. And for the first time really hit in the streets and seeing that like there was a street-based protest to be able to create change. Up until that point, I'd been working in the nonprofit sector as a way to think about systems change or feel like I was contributing to systems change and realizing, um, and not realizing, I should say at that time, the limitations of um, the ability for nonprofits to actually be able to create the change that we wanna see. And so I began, you know, direct action um, with a group of folks that we ultimately named ourselves Equal Action. And I was the only white person in the small collective. And I was getting a lot of credit for the work that we were doing. I was um, seen kind of as the figurehead of the organization. I was taking up a ton of space and not even realizing it, like, there was all these ways in which I was behaving that I had no idea were hurting people that I cared about in the collective. Until one day I got a text that was about me, uh, but it wasn't meant for me. It, it was a text that simply said, have Whitey do it. And it was a text from one friend that was supposed to go to another friend, but it ultimately came to me. It was a mistake. And so I looked at the text and I didn't really know what to do with it. And I was just confused. And so I reached back out to my friend and I was like, hey, is this meant for me? And then um, that friend responded was like, I think we have some things we have to talk about. And so I continued to be perplexed, of course, because at that point I had zero analysis about like, anything related to my white racial identity that could be provoking this kind of response in the situation. So we met in a park and we had this whole conversation in which my friend said to me that, you know, here and laid out the various ways that my behavior was hurtful to to the collective and that the reasons why my behavior was hurtful and the reasons why I was acting in those ways was because of white privilege. And at that moment, I was so hurt on so many levels because I felt like people were talking shit about me behind my back and why couldn't they say it to my face? I um, fought back this whole term of privilege because the way that white folks generally grow up when we, when we hear the word privilege, it's really about like uh, wealth privilege and class privilege. And so as a person who grew up working class, I was like offended to hear that I had some form of privilege, especially something that was unearned or I wasn't even aware of. And I put a lot of the onus of this stress onto my friend. And um, and that essentially like that it was my friend's fault um, for being hurt. And I was really sad, I was really hurt, and then I was also really confused and I didn't know what to do. And so that same friend luckily stuck by me and introduced me to an organization called the Alliance of White Anti-Racists Everywhere LA, also known as Aware LA, which you could check out at awarela.org. We always do a plug at the end of our episodes. And they had this uh, institute called Unmasking Whiteness Institute and um, my friend uh, had a classmate that was doing a plug for this institute in, in this like social work program that, that they were all in together. And so I looked at this Unmasking Whiteness Institute thing, this flyer, and I was like, I don't know, maybe I could 
benefit from this. And I talked to my partner at the time and she was super supportive. Um, and I went to this institute in over four days, uh, learned all about institutional racism and interpersonal racism and cultural racism and like all of all of these definitions um, that previously I just had no context for. And then also had folks um, create a container for our ability to reflect deeply about ways in which whiteness was operating in our lives. And my mind was blown. I was just like, I couldn't believe that my, the ways that I thought I was or the person that I thought I was, I thought I was this really good person because I was really well-intentioned and I was doing all of these things for trying to make this world a better place and, you know, and on behalf of, right? Like coming from this like savior mentality, but feeling like I was supposed to be a good person nonetheless, right? Cause I was, you know, well-intentioned. And so after that, I, was so scared of like doing any sort of organizing work. I stayed with that organization for several years. We did a youth political education um, program. We did an open mic for like seven years, a queer open mic called Outspoken Sessions. We did, um, we were still working together, but I felt silenced because I was so afraid of, of hurting people and not knowing because I just literally spent a lifetime of hurting people and not knowing that I just felt like I didn't really know how to be. So I felt like I just kind of shrank because I was so afraid of making more mistakes and offending people and and not knowing that I was offending people. Um, so I went from one end of like, you know, being a bulldozer and taking up all the space and not thinking about anything um, I was saying or doing because, you know, I should have been judged on my intentions and not my impacts, right? That's how I was living. And then after going to this institute and then going to the Saturday Dialogues, which was this monthly space for white folks to kind of come together and talk about different issues related to um, white racial identity. And um, and then I was just like on this other end of the spectrum of like fear and like so fearful of like hurting people that I cared about that like I just literally didn't know how to be for a long time. Um, and so... I, I stayed in my comfort zones in terms of like the spaces that I was organizing in and we were still organizing queer youth in various ways um, to sort of, you know, create uh, the world we wanted to see, particularly through like we started a, a cooperative business. Um, and again, we continued with this uh doing the um, open mic night and really having that be like a political home for a lot of people and a safe space for queer folks to come together and express ourselves and create community and so forth. But I wasn't doing anything to really think about like white folks and my whiteness and like what I'm going to do as a white person to, you know, undermine white supremacy, like the system, right? Because like a thing for a lot of white folks who are just like, oh, well, you know, white privilege, it's not our fault. And it's like, yeah, you're right. It's not our fault, but we still continue to benefit from it. So like, if we want to live with integrity, like what do we do to challenge the system so that like, you know, if we consider ourselves like good white folks with good intentions, then wouldn't we want more equity in this world, right? So then what is our responsibility to challenge these systems that um, you know, give us those benefits, right? The, those unearned benefits. And so um, then in 2014, when there was um, uh, the uprising happening in Ferguson as a result of uh, the killing of Mike Brown by Officer Darren Wilson, there was two situations happening on my social media feed. One was uh, oftentimes coming from folks that, you know, I knew from, from where I grew up, and it was, what did he do to deserve being, you know, what, what brought on essentially his murder? And, um, and then the other piece of my social media feed was hashtag Black Lives Matter. And those were largely folks in Los Angeles that I had been organizing with and been connected to um, through, through my spaces in equal action and outspoken sessions and so forth. And so I had to sit with myself and really wonder, like, well, Am I going to be too scared to to step in to support this civil rights movement 
because I'm afraid of making mistakes or am I gonna try to do something? And I felt really compelled to do something. And so I looked around and started asking folks in um, my networks and trying to figure out how we can, how I as a person can support this Black Lives Matter movement. And then a friend of mine sent me information about this uh, national call that's showing up for racial justice, which is a national white anti-racist network and organization that they were hosting um, back in November 2014. And it was a call around Ferguson and how white folks can support the uprising, support the activists there, and then support this burgeoning Black Lives Matter movement in ways that were supportive and not overstepping our roles as white folks. Because that was certainly messages we were hearing at the time was like, our place was very limited in in um, the movement at that point. And so I reached out to folks in AWARE um, that I, was connected to to see if AWARE was going to be supporting this at any time. And um, basically, long story short, um, I had a meeting at, in my living room the week after this call, and I put out a Facebook event page that said, calling white anti-racists to support Ferguson. And we sent that out to the AWARE LA listserv and you know online to other activists. And I had 25 people in my living room show up and we sat around and we tried to figure it out and figure out what we could do as white folks who were interested in um, supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. And we began organizing together ever since then. Um, and our organizing has taken a lot of different shape, shapes over, over, um, over the last five years, but we did just have like our five-year anniversary uh, in December. We have more than 3,000 people on our listserv. We have you know, anywhere from 50 to 80 people coming to our monthly general meetings. And we have a lot of work groups that look at how, we're tr how we can skill up white folks to interrupt racism in multiple levels, whether it's institutional racism, cultural racism, interpersonal racism, as well as intrapersonal, so like within ourselves, and really thinking about what is our theory of change so that we can build a mass base of white people, like literally like, according to showing up for racial justice, if we wanna make the gains that we wanna make to undermine this white supremacist system, we have to mobilize seven million white people, that's three and a half percent of the population in the country, and that will that mobilization and getting those folks activated can really help make the political gains that we need to make for equity. And so that's been our charge since. And, you know, and that's how, you know, you and I met Yvette and which sure I'm like was. so thankful uh, we met through uh, collaboration with your work with Justice L.A. and through um, efforts for bail reform and now through alternatives to incarceration work group. And, you know, it's just been amazing to um, think about all of like the wealth of like uh, community that has come as a result of the desire to, you know, be a white person living with integrity and support other white folks with undermining white support for white supremacy. Well, I can't say enough about how well white people for black lives shows up. Uh, for the work you all have been and I've told you this Dahlia you all have been just such solid partners we're always on time you're always on time if not early <laughs> you sure are <laughs> and we appreciate it most of the time <laughs> but no it's it's been really wonderful to be able to work with you and uh, your organization in such solid ways and being able to have you all support has manifested in some amazing wins last year. Mm -hmm. You know, the shutting down of three jails, uh, the, the alternatives to incarceration work that you mentioned. Uh, so having you all in that space has, has been just a huge asset to the work. Uh, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's been really just like a beautiful and transformative experience going from this like no name group of white folks with, you know, well-intentioned, you know, 
desires to like show up in ways that were supportive and in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement to really building trusting relationships with the Los Angeles chapter of Black Lives Matter, uh, with Justice LA and with so many other organizations, which we will be featuring over time in these, in this podcast uh, series, because these, they're, you know, these are the folks that we're in the work with. These are the folks that are making moves here in Los Angeles and are, you know, influencing the landscape of, uh, organizing across the entire country. So, um, yeah, I'm just like super excited with what we can do both with this podcast and its contributions to changing, changing the world as well as what we're doing here on the ground on the day to day. And I'm excited for all of our bold listeners that identify as white to have a model of what it can look like to show up, mm. that it doesn't have to mean shrinking away from the work because right. you might make mistakes and it might seem scary, that there is support, there is information, uh, there is community yeah. so that you all can show up better um, and be part of the liberation movement. There, there are opportunities. Um, so thank you for the work that you do and um, for contributions and for helping educate our communities to, to do better and be better. Well, thank you for your leadership. I mean, one thing that we, uh, we always talk about taking our cues from folks who are impacted by various issues and, um, and you've given us, you, you know, the opportunity to really show up in ways that um, are useful and make an impact for you know folks here in Los Angeles and beyond. Thank you for that. Get a room. <laughs> <laughs> Can we keep that in? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so yeah, all right. So we got into some serious stuff right there. Uh, as you can see, both Yvette and I are really passionate about the work that we do and you know co-conspiring together to uh, challenge you know challenge these oppressive systems that we have and really like building the world that we want to see you know the world of our imaginations and so you know with that we're gonna we're gonna like kind of switch a, a little bit of gears have, go back to having a little bit of fun um, something that I've learned from a vet um, is the importance of knowing people's signs like astrological signs so that you can read people better I still don't quite uh have all of the information that i'm supposed to have on these things but i do get schooled frequently so a vet what is your sign and why does that matter so i have several signs as do we all correct correct <laughs> so, might be once again i already made a mistake i know we got the sun the rising the this the that the There's moon 12. Your, your venus your right. mars can you give us the one you're like the, whatever that main one is well okay so i would oh geez that's so great. i would yeah i would argue that um the main one that folks usually name which is your sun sign is actually not the main one right. so I'll, I'll name my main you know so my sun sign is my is gemini but mm. I think my the right most hated sign. Yes, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I know listen, that one. <laughs> listen, <laughs> we have a bad rep, but I think it's unwarranted. And as a Scorpio Dahlia, I would think that you would have a little empathy. I do, I do. For the other having, hated sign. Yeah, I just like to say that we are tender, and we just, you know have a little bit of like um resentment uh, issues. Ooh. <laughs> We're protective of our hearts. Thank you very much. Go on. Gemini. Can't let anything go. All right. Um so I'm a Gemini sun. I'm a Sagittarius rising. So just to explain the difference, your sun sign is w what makes you tick in internally. Where your rising sign is what you project to the world. And then my moon sign and that's where all of the emotions are your your moon sign is just all the feelings is Pisces which is an all the feelings kind of sign so for a Gemini I have a lot of feelings mm. and um, my Venus is in Taurus so uh, the bull 
Yeah. So although <laughs> my Gemini side can make me a little flirty and flighty, a, a little bit of an airhead, my <laughs> my Tor, my Venus and Taurus and Venus, as you can imagine, that's where all the love and romance. It's how you how you love is is your Venus sign. Um, it keeps me grounded. I'm very much a. Uh, a rooted like family kind of person when it comes to love. So Dahlia, tell tell our listeners about your <laughs> well, about your signs. You, you already had a spoiler there. <laughs> uh, so you know, I was born October twenty eighth. You know, so I am a Scorpio. I know people are not holding it against me. Thank you very much. <laughs> Um, and I remember you telling me my other two signs. I know one of them is a Scorpio and one of them is a Cancer, but I don't remember which one was which. Your rising is Scorpio, so you're a double Scorpio. I'm, a double, I'm yeah. very intense, very, and very fiercely loyal, extremely mm. loyal, and I really know how to hold a grudge. You like, sure do. I can, you know, I have a college education in grudge holding. Uh huh. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. But, you know, but I'm also a damn good time and I am the best friend you will ever have. Like, and if somebody fucks with you and you're my friend, they are exed. Thank you very much. I appreciate that kind of yes. loyalty. Yeah, I, I feel like I I'm definitely like a ride or die kind of friend mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, who do we hate? Cool. Like they're on my shit list. <laughs> right. kind just of. tell me who. Done. Just, just done. <laughs> so I appreciate that loyalty value. Yes. I really, yes. really do. <laughs> um, and I definitely as a Gemini, I feel a kinship. I've always felt a kinship with Scorpios because we're so maligned in the Zodiac <laughs> and people just have like the worst feelings about us. But, I, you know, personally, just knowing Gemini, other Geminis, <laughs> we are the most fun. I like, agree. I agree. All the Gemini's in my life are solid. Yeah, we're solid. a damn good time too. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think anyone that talks shit about Gemini's, they're just <laughs> they're just projecting what they don't like about themselves. Like I see Gemini's as Gemini mirrors. Response. Yeah, we're mirrors, and so when people don't like something about us, it's just because they don't like the, that about themselves. Ouch. We're gonna yeah. lose some listeners on this one. <laughs> we 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 may have some some comments coming in. And you are allowed to disagree. Well, just a vet may disagree with that disagreement, <laughs> but it's okay, you know. Uh, so, so before we, you know, wrap up, let's wrap up on a musical note. What musical genre defined you in your youth, and what about now? Oh, this is a hard one. I think we've already named some musical true, genres. True. But, um, I mean, I think in so the first one of the first CDs, if not the first CD that I ever bought was Cats, the music from the musical Cats. Oh my lord. <laughs> <laughs> so musical theater, classical music, like I grew up, you know, playing classical piano, mm. um, jazz piano, that was, that was like the music that I listened to as a little girl. Um, moving into junior high, I would definitely say hip hop and R&B. So like Janet Jackson, 90s. Mariah, yeah. like it was the 90s. Like that was my jam. Like n nobody could touch Janet in my book. Of course not. Um, Aaliyah. Still the queen. Oh my God, still. So we saw Janet Jackson last in year. Vegas, in Vegas, best show oh. ever. She still got it. She still got it. She's so good. J Lo, um, like that whole that whole moment. Mace. Oh my god, I had a huge crush on Mace. Um, yeah, I could go on and on, but just hip hop and R and B, like that was you know late nineties for me. And then I would say moving into high school, um, I really got into ska, punk, um, noisecore, hardcore. Um, I was kind of like a straight edge kid. So I'd go, to, you know, my mom would bless her heart, which she would drop me off at these clubs, at these shows. And she knew that I wasn't going to smoke or drink or do anything. Um, and I'd come home smelling like, you know, cigarettes and beer or whatever. But she she was she trusted me to a certain extent. Um, I think she was more concerned about me ending up pregnant. <laughs> but, um but yeah, so I, I was really into that moment, um, but also electronic music. Um, and I think I really got into electronic music, like hardcore, uh, once, um, once I went to college. 
Um, but I did do some like raving as as a youth, but really in college was when I really got into it and um, got exposed to the intersection of electronic music and like global music. Mm. So um, digital cumbia, which actually Selena was a pioneer. Mm. Like if you haven't heard techno cumbia, like you should get with it. But yeah, the the intersection of um, of Jersey Club uh, house music, Baltimore Club music with like Miami bass, with Zouk bass from Brazil, um, with footwork. So listening to electronic music that actually made me think of my youth, like think of like the music that my mom and dad would play Mm -hmm. that made me feel like really rooted and grounded. Like my dad's from Cuba and my mom's from Mexico. So it was a mixture of like cumbia music and salsa music and um and just Caribbean beats um, and rhythms, um, which are also present in ska, mm-hmm. which I think also drew me to ska um, as a youth. Cause it's also like, it was like ska spaces were the one like punk rock spaces that actually felt happy and safe for me too. Um, and that, that kind of space was, um, was a place where like a little baby me at like you know less than five feet tall at a hundred pounds <laughs> can really like dance on the dance floor without feeling like I will get hit or knocked down or anything. But um, yeah, I think once once I entered into my twenties and and um, discovered worldwide digital music, that's that's when I became really interested in um, in creating those kinds of spaces. And so that's how I got into uh, DJing and producing music and art events. Um, I actually started in the Bay Area as a fundraiser for and Castro for all the organization that I was organizing with. And then when I moved to New York, I started these queer global base uh, parties called Asukad in Brooklyn and Bed-Stuy. And uh, they kind of started from these these little parties at this tiny little bar, this little tiki bar in Bed-Stuy. Um, they kind of exploded to where we were doing parties, you know, in Mexico City and Detroit in Boston, um, here in California, all over the place. And they were also fundraisers for radical organizations like Sylvia Rivera Law Project. Mm-hmm. Um, and we worked with like Brooklyn Museum, Museo del Barrio. And so music has been also part of my organizing history, like organizing radical dance spaces. And that's just kept introducing me to more and more music. So I would say that now... Um, the genre of music that I would most identify like at this moment. Uh, well, I, I think house and disco is having a special moment for me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always loved like house and disco and like mixing it with global beats. Um, but I've kind of come full circle on on the disco in particular. My mom was a disco queen. Um, you know, she was in her twenties in the seventies, and she had this uh, one of the, you know we didn't bring a lot from Mexico when we moved here, but she definitely brought her uh, cassette like deck. It was like this case just full of cassettes, and most of it was like disco and rock from the seventies. Nice. Um, and so I feel like I'm kind of coming back full circle. To that right now awesome how about you for me it's a little bit of a shorter story because i uh you know well my when i was growing up my mom was listening a lot to uh, motown that was kind of her music from you know that she listened to when she was a youth and kind of well into adulthood and uh, she wasn't like a Beatles fan back in like the 60s and what have you. She was really just into Motown. So I was kind of like I listened to a lot of that. And then once I got into like music for myself, like the first concert I ever went to was like the Cranberries. And then I became like super into, you know, Smashing Pumpkins and like all that, you know, Nirvana and like all the, the 90s sort of rock before it became more commercial and like manufactured. And then, of course, like 90s hip hop got into that and, you know, in high school and middle school and high school and throughout. But kind of once I got into the electronic music, like once I got into the rave scene and got into like house music, it was just kind of like 
house music forever and like that is just like keeps my blood pumping i still love to go out and listen to good djs like still love new york house music like louis vega like just you know just the people that really know how to deliver on that solid house music beat and i hope there are some house heads that are listening right now and you know exactly what i'm talking about but you know paradise garage you know, disco, like where nobody is talking and everybody is dancing, like and that's it. And the dance floor is sweating and it's a beautiful thing. And I just like still crave that. And it's been more than 20 years of listening to this music and I cannot get it out of my system. So, you know, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm like still at the house disco place and like, yeah, forever. I love it. Yeah. So that's a little bit about us as your hosts. And we are excited to, you know, keep building with y'all, our bold community. And uh, just so y'all know, um, we actually have an email address now. So you can communicate with us. You can go to boldconversationspod at gmail.com and hit us up if you have questions, if you have comments. We plan on, you know, highlighting some of these questions that you all might be given to us throughout the upcoming episodes in the season so that, you know, we can continue this conversation about race and so that you know that we are resources to you and that we're here for you and we're here to continue building our family and building out community because, you know, it's going to take all of us. That completes our conversation for the episode, but before we let you go, we'd like to share a cultural piece provided by a socially conscious and active friend of the podcast. This time, it's Just On Time by Indigo Mateo, produced by and used with permission from Richie Reseda. Our theme music is Heartbeats by Rachel Cantu and Melantopia. Stay tuned at the end of the show for a final word from Yvette and Dahlia, as well as this episode's calls to action questions to stimulate thought, invitations for feedback, and a collection of links and resources to help you on your journey. As always, you can find all that information in the episode's show notes at patreon.com smallbeans. And now, just on time. All I've seen, you know, is this, and felt this. So I thought, where am I? Everybody's got a vision if you listen Never wonder if your magic superstition I heard the curtain is hidden And when you're feeling something you gotta sit with it Just trust yourself to love yourself A lesson the elders taught me well If you don't, who's gonna do it? No one else has your dream, pursue it I love the old cause they're bold and righteous just on time, just on time I love the young cause they're wild and free And just on time, just on time Bump to this one if you want a mission Stay fulfilling through the friction you've been given What the future holds is what you're speaking You can teleport to what you're seeking You are enough, you've always been Circumstances don't change or lives within Don't feel pressure, guilty or stressed Deeper than the pain lies your purpose Let it surface I love the old cause they're bold and righteous And just on just on time I love the young Cause they're wild and free And just on time Just on time Hey, somebody say I've got a place Somebody claim they generation Somebody put a smile on your face Somebody teach me them traditions Like Folks, they already know Feed and nurture your spirit to grow Ask the young ones, they already see We are all the wisdom that we need Ask the elders, they be hip to it Feed and grow your own youthful spirit Ask the youngsters, they already be We are all the truth that we seek We are all the wisdom We are all the wisdom that we
I mentioned earlier two ways that I got involved in white anti-racist work, and one was unmasking whiteness. And so if you're interested in joining Unmasking Whiteness, you can. It's happening in July in here in Los Angeles. And you can go to awarela.org for more information about that. And also showing up for racial justice. You can head to showingupforracialjustice.org and you can click on the chapter and affiliate section and you can find a chapter in your state. We're really excited about season two, y'all. We have a lot of excellent content coming your way, and we hope that you join us for the next three episodes. The show is hosted and produced by me, Dahlia Forlito. And me, Yvette Ole. Produced by Kareem Alzine and Hannah Jers-Allen of White People for Black Lives and Michael Swaim of Small Beans Comedy. Additional audio engineering by Adam Ganser. Thanks, y'all. See you next episode. Bye.